Okay, so I said to Lewis, I said, uh, you ever heard of William Carey? You know, he says, yeah, he was this, uh, he was the shoe guy. And uh, he was, he was a shoe guy. And I said, you know, why did I miss the shoe jokes in the lesson today? I could have talked about the shoe factory that burned down where 10,000 souls were lost, but all the heels were saved. I could have talked about any number of different, you know, um, what do you get when, never mind. Um, but you want me to tell a loafer joke? No. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> So with that, let's talk about William Carey. I need to begin by saying that uh, uh, the lesson is an interesting lesson from the perspective of how it was prepared. Dale Hearn, who is in Israel right now, um, is a William Carey fanatic. And so Dale has been beseeching me for the last two years we've been dealing with church history. Can you go ahead and get to William Carey? And I was like, no, Dale, we're in the 200s, you know, it's going to be a while. No, 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 let's just skip. Let's do William Carey. So once we started getting close, about a month or so ago, Dale decides he wants to start cranking on the William Carey lesson himself. So Dale sends me the William Carey lesson. And it's basically a book. It's huge. And so I said, well, you know, Dale, I can't really spend six weeks on William Carey. This is church history literacy, not William Carey. Carrie's life. And uh, so, but thanks to Dale, I have whittled down his material, added a little bit of my own and and changed it up some, but I do want to acknowledge him for the written materials because he contributed substantially to those uh, today. And with that, let's talk about William Carey. We are dealing with Baptist expansion. Here's why. In the 1600s, in the free church movement, if we put the Baptists on a graph, they don't really show up. Because there aren't a lot of Baptists in the world. There are a couple of dozen congregations with a couple of dozen families in them, maybe. But we're dealing with a few thousand Baptists in the 1600s. But if you go to the 2000s, all of a sudden you've got 90 million of them around the world. Which brings up the natural question, where did all these Baptists come from? You know, this is more than just breeding, okay? This isn't, gee, genetically, those thousand Baptists in the 1600s must have had a lot of children, okay? No, it's much more than that. What happened is they went out among the masses and took the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Baptist church, the Baptist denomination, grew as a result of that. We're going to talk this morning about that expansion. We're going to talk more about that expansion next week with Lottie Moon. But this morning, we're going to talk about William Carey. William Carey is called the father of modern missions by many people because of what he did. I have grown to have a great appreciation for William Carey throughout the studies that I've been doing trying to get ready for this class. I hope that I can share part of that with you. What I'd really like you to tune into this class is not just the historical data of William Carey and how he lived his life and what happened, but recognize God's hand behind the scenes. See how God's working in his life and see the way interactions of different people get involved. I had a chance this week to get a devotional book for some friends. It's entitled, God is no 
Fool. It's by a woman named Lois Cheney. And it's being republished. I got the book when I was in high school originally. I didn't know it it went out of print for a while. I didn't know you could buy it again. But I found it on Amazon.com. And I I bought some copies to give to some people. There are a number of devotionals in there that are wonderful. Number 43 is entitled Bits and Pieces. And in essence, what it says is the following. Uh, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. We're made up of bits and pieces of everybody we come into contact with. And there's some people you come into contact with and they, they make such a deep impression on you that when you pull away from them or they pull away from you, it leaves this big gaping hole and you just wonder how you're going to keep going. And then there are people you come into contact with who rub you maybe the wrong way. And when you separate from them for some reason or another, you feel refreshed. Then there are people who come into contact with you and you hardly think they have any effect on you at all. But later on you realize that they may have. Maybe it was something they said. Maybe it was something they wore. But ultimately, we are made up in so many ways of bits and pieces of everybody we come into contact with. And so the devotional says to praise God and thank God and wonder for all the bits and pieces. And I want you to think about that as we look at William Carey and see the way his life was shaped. And see who moves into his life and has an effect and who moves out. Because the bottom line is you are bits and pieces of everyone you touch as well. And so, you know, I can see Peter out there and and the people that Peter will work with this week or the people that Peter will see, he will have an effect on. And that's true for all of us. So with that in mind, let's look at William Carey and his life. He was born in Pollersbury, England, August 17th, 1761. To put this into time frame, uh, we studied uh, for a number of weeks um, uh, the father of Methodism and... (laughs) His name has just totally left me. Did y'all pay attention to those classes? Do you? Thank you. John Wesley. Boo! Totally out. Sang one of his brother's songs this morning at church. Uh, Charles Wesley's songs. But uh, um, John Wesley's been preaching for about three decades now. Uh, Methodism is part of the Anglican church. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, William Carey's not born into a Methodist family. He's born into a family not in London, in Paulusbury, which is a little bit northwest of London. He's born into a family that's very much an Anglican family. Uh, they they are active in the church there in Paulusbury. This is a picture of Puri End, which is the little area in Paulusbury where. Uh, uh, William Carey is born. His house has been torn down that he was born in, but they have a marker there and you can go see it. People have redrawn the house to give you a flavor of what it would have looked like. It wasn't a big house. His parents were weavers. They they, uh, uh, wove fabric for a living. They weren't wealthy, but the father had enough education to where at one point when William is six, the father is put in charge of the local charity school. A charity school was not uh, a big school like we might think of today. It's one that basically taught core reading. And as a result, the Careys moved to the schoolhouse and they lived there. It, again, is not a big palatial mansion, but it was a substantial house. William's the oldest of five children. William and then four younger ones. 
William is an interesting fella. He's got gifts and abilities. How many of you have children? Okay, almost a good bit of us. Have you noticed that certain of your children have certain gifts and abilities? We could tell at an early age that Will was going to, to be very good at math. One of the ways we would entertain Will, or I would entertain Will when he was young, um, uh, uh, we'd, I'd have him out to lunch or something to keep his mind occupied. I'd say, Will, this is when he's four, five, six years old. If I've got ten apples and I give three of them to you and I give three of them to Gracie, but then someone gives me five new apples, how many apples would I have? And Will could just sit there and he'd look at me for a second. He'd say, nine. I said, that's right. When Gracie, who's here today, got to be that age. There she is back there. Gracie, when you were that age, I tried the same thing on you. <clears throat> I, except with Gracie, I broke it down a little simpler. I said, Gracie, if I had an, you had an apple and I gave you another apple, how many apples would you have? And Gracie looked at me and smiled and said, seven. <laughs> and then Gracie looked at me and said, Dad, if you had an apple and I gave you a banana, how many apples would you have? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, this child thinks differently than Will. <laughs> I said, well, honey, how many would I have? She says, you wouldn't have an apple. You'd have a fruit salad. But you'd need to, <laughs> but you'd need to peel the banana because you can't eat the peeling. I thought, this child has got, you know, Will may have a bent toward math. This child is missing it if she doesn't find something creative and with flair and elan in her life. Okay? Children, you can see them at an early age and see their dispositions. You can see the way that, that God has, has put talents and gifts into them. Now, the wild part is, is how many of y'all were children once? <laughs> Almost all of you. The same would have been true for us. Constable Hickman, as a kid, his parents would have seen in him a disposition and a bent toward different areas, different gifts, different abilities. Same as John. Same with any of us. So, so if, if we could go back in time and see ourselves growing up, we might see that as well. Well, I got to tell you, William Carey had um, options. He had doors in front of him just based on the natural talents God gave him. This was a boy who was enamored with anything that had to do with plants or bugs. He had a huge bug collection. He'd make his little sister Polly go out and collect bugs and bring them to him. You couldn't go into his room without finding bugs all over the place. Huge bugs. If he's walking down the road and he sees plants, he would want to get a leaf of every different kind of plant. He had a big leaf collection. There wasn't a kind of plant he wasn't fascinated in. And this was the age of reason. Remember those classes that we had? This was when science was really unfolding in the minds of Western civilization. And this was a fellow who very easily could have made a career and likely would have made a career out of being a plant or an insect scientist. But that door got closed when he was seven years old because he developed a, a, a condition that basically says he can't be in the sunshine for an extended period of time. So with that condition, his door gets shut. Now, he had another door. 
This was a kid who had a natural gift for languages. Seven years old. He taught himself Latin. Yeah. Okay. I tried to learn Latin with teachers. And it wasn't easy. I can't imagine as a kid teaching yourself Latin. But he just had that bent. He had that within him. Now, his parents did not see either of those as career choices for him. They are weavers. They expect him to make a living. So at age 14, they ship him out to start working. And they apprentice him to a shoemaker to work as a cobbler making shoes. And at age 14, he goes to work for this old fella who makes shoes. And, and, and while he's working making shoes... William Carey realizes that he's actually able to read and look at things and think with his mind while he's doing his work around the shop. So there's a little crack in one of the doors while he's working on shoes. As a 14-year-old, he works as an apprentice. He does his work. And while he's working on shoes, he teaches himself Greek. It's like the fellow who went to law school working nights as a neurosurgeon. You know, just something to do while you're studying. Um, He actually works making shoes, apprentice to a shoemaker. And while he's doing it, he teaches himself Greek. There's a co-worker there, a fellow named John War, who is also uh, very active. And John War comes to him and says, hey... I go to a dissenter church. Instead of the Church of England you're going to, I go to one of these little groups that's not really sanctioned where we're not supposed to be going much, but they're now legal. There are a few families. Why don't you come to church with me? And so William Carey starts going to church with this fella he works with. I say that because those of us who work I wonder how often we invite someone to come to church with us that we work with. Historically, not a bad idea. Everybody knows William Carey if they spend much time studying Baptist history, but John War, he's kind of like the guy who got him hooked. Gets William Carey to start coming to church with him. During this time, uh, things change in the world. 1779 was a big year in the life of William Carey. It was a big year because the King of England declared February 10th, 1779, a national day of prayer and fasting. Do you know why? Because England had just lost the Revolutionary War to the United States of America. England had surrendered, given us our independence. And as a result, the king of England declared in the English country that it would be a national day of prayer. On that day, William Carey went to church with his co-worker, the other apprentice, John War. And the sermon blew Carey away. Carey was touched. 1779 was also a big year for him because the cobbler he worked for, the, the shoemaker, died. And so William Carey went to work for a second shoemaker, a guy named Thomas Olds, O-L-D-S. While working for Thomas Olds, he kind of uh, got an interest in the sister-in-law of his boss, a woman named Dolly Pickett. They got married a couple of years later in 1781. 
you can see the wedding license. If you go over to England, Dolly signs it with an X because she couldn't read or write. She married a guy who's got this phenomenal gift of language. She can't read or write, but cut her some slack. She was only 14. At the time, at the time, William Carey's 19. They proceed to have six children. The two girls uh, die as infants, and then they have four boys as well. Uh, it's not long before the boss dies, William or Thomas Olds. And when the boss dies, William takes over the cobbler business. And he becomes his own boss. He is the shoe maker, salesman. He's the shoe man in that little town. And this is the life of this man. Now, while he's running his own business and while he's making shoes, he takes advantage of the opportunity to read and to study. So this is a fellow who not only speaks his native English and has taught himself Latin and has taught himself Greek, but he says, eh, I got all this time on my hands while I'm working. Might as well learn Dutch. Dutch? Why not French? You know, if I could learn Hebrew, I could read the Old Testament. Italian. I like the food. Might as well speak the language. I don't know if he liked Italian food, but I like the food, so he might as well speak the language. So, William Carey, this fellow with this great gift of languages, proceeds to teach himself all of these different languages while he's working making shoes. In 1782, he hears a sermon the sermon is based on Hebrews 13, verses 13 through 14. The scripture being, let us go to him outside the camp. Him is Jesus in this reference. Outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that Jesus bore. For here, we do not have an enduring city. But we're looking for the city that is to come. And the scripture that Hebrews is talking about is how, how Jesus, we, we will leave the camp to go to Jesus. Because in the camp, we don't have an enduring city. That's to be found with Jesus. Well, this scripture means the world, William Carey. And he decides based on this scripture that he should, William Carey, should leave the Church of England formally. And go outside to the dissenting church where he had been attending. Which just happened to be a dissenting Baptist church. And so he does. And uh, if we put it on a time graph, I don't know how well that shows up, but 1783 to 1793. The next year in 1783, Carey is baptized and actually starts working as a lay preacher and does some lay preaching there within the church while he's making shoes and learning all of his different languages and fathering children. Then Carey tries to apply for a job in Olney, a nearby town, as a preacher, and they go, eh. And they reject him. Doesn't make it look real promising and real good. But uh, he still stays with it. Sticks with it. Continues his study. Continues with his heart of love and care. And uh, pretty soon he gets a job as a part-time preacher. Part-time preacher. Part-time school teacher. And he makes shoes for a living. All while he's got his children. His wife. And he's working uh, 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 to learn these languages. From his part-time preaching job, that pretty soon turns into a full-time preaching job. And from a full-time preaching job, he gets a job at a church that's got a lot of problems. It's a church that goes through three preachers in three years. 
The main problem of the church is this is a Baptist church that believes in predestination, that you are chosen by God for salvation. And part and parcel of their belief was the view that, hey, since we're chosen by God and we're saved by faith, we can do anything we want to do. Sin is irrelevant. You would think a church like that would really be large. I mean, come to church and sin all you want and go home with a clear conscience. Well, William Carey went to the church and he took the job preaching and he said, this will not do. God did not call us to be sinners. Very much like Pastor Fleming preached this morning. That's contrary to our natures. Ephesians 5, we're to imitate or mimic God. And so with that, there's some friction. So what William Carey does is he comes up with a real novel solution to the church problem. He fires all the members. That's okay. You're all fired. None of you are allowed to go to church here anymore. Unless you're willing to sign here that says you'll take holiness seriously. You want to take holiness seriously? You're welcome here. And before long, they're busting down the doors to come into this church. Because the church is a church of love and compassion, like Pastor Fleming said this morning. The kind of church where the walls can't hold the people back because everybody wants in. An unusual solution. In 1792, a number of the Baptist churches get together and they have this big meeting. And the meeting starts out, the pastors of the churches meet together. The meeting starts out with prayer and praise, but then William Carey gives a 10 a.m. sermon. And in this sermon, William Carey says, we need to be going out and reaching the lost for Jesus. He says, we need to expect great things from God. And if we expect great things from God, we should be attempting great things from God, right? If you expect God to do great things, then attempt them because you can expect that he will deliver. And so he does that. And out of this meeting comes a resolution that a plan would be prepared for forming a Baptist society to propagate, which is a plant term. (laughs) Remember, he liked plants to propagate or spread the gospel among the heathen. And so these ministers decide that's what they're going to do. And they actually form what becomes the Baptist Missionary Society. At this meeting, uh, they they do this. Now, William Carey wasn't just preaching the sermons. He wrote a book during this time period as well. Here's a picture of the title page. It's a book in 1792, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the successive former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered by William Carey. (laughs) Okay, what's the title of the book? No, I'm just joking. Um, it's, it's a very interesting book. It's divided into five parts. The first question is, first part, does the Great Commission go into all the world and preach the gospel? Does it apply to everybody or simply the apostles? He argues it applies to everybody. Everyone is supposed to be uh, doing that. Then, Carey has in part two a historical survey of the, of the mission work of the church. He goes back and starts with Paul's missionary journeys and acts, goes all the way up through John Wesley. 
Then he says, now let's survey the populations of the world. And he goes through all the different countries and says, here's how many people we think are in these countries and here are their principal religious backgrounds. Then he says, what would be the practical problems of doing this? Well, first of all, we can't get British food in a lot of these places, but that's okay. He says, you've got to figure those people are eating something. Whatever works for them would work for us. He says, yeah, you might get killed, but that's okay. You could get killed here too. And God's looking out for you. And he goes through all these practical issues. And then in the fifth part, he says, now, wait a minute. We're supposed to be predestination churches. Why, if we believe God picks people for salvation, would we bother to spend our time going out and evangelizing? Have you ever heard that argument before? If God predestines or picks the people for eternity, then why would anyone be motivated to go out and preach the gospel? Well, that's not a good question. Whether you believe in predestination or not, I don't believe that's a good argument against it. And let me tell you why. And this is his answer in part. It's also the answer of John Stott, who has written a book, or J.I. Packer, I'm sorry, who wrote a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Same issue. Here's the answer. God said to. Okay, that's a good enough reason to do anything. See, I came from a background where a lot of the people that taught me believed that you needed to be baptized to go to heaven. Okay? A lot of folks in the Church of Christ believe that historically, and that's the, the, the denomination I grew up in, that if you're going to go to heaven, you have to be baptized. All right? Now, here's what would happen. When... Baptists would argue with these Church of Christ folks, and I'd be listening as a kid. The Church of Christ folks would say to the Baptists, well, if you don't believe baptism's essential to go to heaven, why be baptized? Do you know what the Baptist answer is? Because God said to. Okay? Well, that same answer and same reasoning applies to go into the world and preach the gospel. Well, if it's not going to make a difference in who's in heaven, why do it? Because God said to. And that's the argument that he puts out. And so as a result of this book, these predestination Baptist churches form the Baptist Mission Society. They didn't call it that initially, but that's what it is today. And we have world missions. Now, that's in 1792. I'll tell you this. William Carey didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. The next year, 1793, he leaves for India and leads a mission team to India. It's a slow start getting to India. This is the area that's outside of Calcutta that he's going to. Takes him five months to get there. They couldn't get the visa. It wasn't a visa. It was a permission from the East Indies Trading Company. But they couldn't get the permission to go. So they were going to kind of sneak out of England to go. One captain won't let them. Then they get a, a foreign captain who's going to take them. And, and meanwhile, William Carey's wife's pregnant with a kid, and she's not going. She's never been more than two or three miles from her house, and she's not about to start then, especially with this place called India. The flights were really bad then. The phone lines just were not regular. And it was not the kind of place she planned on going pregnant and raising her kids, especially when you consider the boat ride would take five months. 
Well, because William Carey doesn't get on that first boat or isn't able to go far on that first boat, he goes back and he manages to talk his wife into finally going. She's now given birth and he offers to bring her sister Kitty with them to help take care of the kid. So they all get together and they all go and they head to India and it takes them five months. And do you know what uh, uh, dear William Carey spends his time doing on the boat for five months? Learning Bengali, the language that they're going to have when they reach India. And uh, so that's what he does. Now, he starts serving in India. There are a long list of reasons he should have turned around and gone home. Before any success was found on the mission field. A long list of reasons. There were family reasons. One of his children, one of his boys got sick and died. His wife uh, had a nervous breakdown and basically went into insanity land. Tried to kill him a couple of times. Was uh, 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 frequently heard yelling hysterically and uncontrollably. Um, uh, was uh, not only an embarrassment but, but a, a great difficulty for him on the mission field. Uh, not, in addition to the family problems, there were money problems. One of the missionaries that went with him, a Dr. Thomas... Um, was, uh, well, Dale Hearn, when he wrote the lesson, he had some very strong language for Dr. Thomas because Dale is a financial planner. So to Dale, Dr. Thomas was, um, it was very strong language. I tempered it. Um, I just called him an irresponsible, um, fella as opposed to some of the other things that Dale said. But the bottom line is, is this Dr. Thomas seemed to have uh, taken some of the money that was meant for missions and used it to live a different kind of life uh, for himself. Uh, uh, and and it, it was a very difficult time. So the money wasn't there. It was a, a difficult uh, money situation. They couldn't just get money wired in or anything like that. So they had family problems, health problems, they had money problems. And then the politics of the whole thing got messed up because Napoleon is and France and England are at war and Napoleon supposedly is sending spies in India to contemplate how to take over India. So these missionaries that came in arguably without English permission to start with, India is, is a protectorate of, of England at the time, they're viewed with some suspicion. And ultimately the, 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 the mission effort is not able to set up in the community where they thought they were supposed to. Instead, they set up in another community where they got permission from a Danish governor. But with all of these reasons, God was still at work. And William Carey stays. And something really neat happens. There's a fellow named Krishna Powell. And Krishna Powell separates his shoulder. And he hears in the mission there's this Dr. Thomas who might be able to help him. Dr. Thomas and William Carey and some others go back and wrench that shoulder out and pop it back in place. And they start talking to Krishna. And they talk and they talk and they talk. And before long, in the Ganges River, they baptize their first Indian, Krishna Pal. And it is the start of something incredible. Not only that, but the friends back home have sent over some more missionaries to work. And among those missionaries is a typesetter. The typesetter comes and William Carey's gotten a hold of an old printing press. And in 1801, do you know what they do? 
they publish a Bengali New Testament. William Carey has translated that old shoemaker from Paulusbury has gone over and translated the New Testament into Bengali for the first time in history. This is a copy of the title page. You can see those letters don't even look like normal letters. The typesetter had to hand make all of the letters to be able to do it. But you can see up here the Bible in the Bengali language by W. Carey. And that's what we have. Printed 1801. And the stories of this are incredible. They printed 2,000 copies. They thought that's like having 2,000 missionaries because the Bible alone goes out. Unknown to them, one of the Bibles gets sent to a, a town in what is now Bangladesh called Decca. And uh, Bangladesh was, it looks close on the map, but it wasn't close. And there are some heathens who get a hold of this New Testament in Bangladesh and they start reading it. And no missionary is there. But 17 years after the Bible shows up in Decca, Bangladesh, missionaries finally get there. When they get there, they find these people who are heathen are living some type of a Christian lifestyle. So what's going on here? And they said, we've got this great book. And one day someone's going to explain it to us. We keep it in this box. And they said, well, what's the book? And they go over and they open up the box. And it, it's one of carries New Testaments in Bengali. And they said, yeah, we're here. We can't explain to you what this is about. And the town and the area is converted. Incredible stories. I want to tell you that by 1837, this little shoemaker of weaver parents with limited education has translated with his group the Bible into over 40 languages and dialects. That wasn't the only arm that they used. They also had a missionary school. Carey uh, had some experience as a teacher. His daddy had been a teacher and Carey had been kind of a little village teacher. And heaven knows he was smart. Well, uh, uh, the, the viceroy set up a college, the College of Fort William in 1801. And needed some professors. And they had all the smart college professors with all the smart college degrees. But you know what? None of them spoke Bengali. So they needed an Englishman who spoke Bengali to help teach all of the British sons and, and people who were living over there in England at the time so that they could function. So they bring in William Carey and hire him as the professor to teach Bengali. Well... You got to have a book. What better book to use than the Bible to teach the language? So the Bengali Bible and William Carey. And oh, by the way, there are some other tongues as well and some other dialects that they need to know. So the college pays for people to come teach William Carey the other languages that William needed to know to translate the Bible. Isn't that just incredible? And so this is going on. Well, well, now, William Carey, he sees a good thing. He says, well, why don't we start a Christian school? Because the one problem with the school that's here is it's only for the British upper class, the children of the Britons, who, English, who are living in India, running the country. Let's form one where the Indians themselves are allowed to come, where there is no social distinction. And so in 1834, Carey begins his own college. 
And uh, the college is still there today, by the way. This is a, a building that was built at the time by Carey for his college. Carey dies in June of 1834. But I want to tell you that in, this is a, a bust of him in that college there. I want to tell you that while Carey died, there are some other things that I've, I've left out of the story for a minute. You know, we talked about the two doors. God had given him these gifts. And you can see how he used that gift of language. But what about that first gift, the love of nature and botany? Gift of language? Yeah, God used that. Let me tell you about the first gift. Once he was in India, and once Carrie had these wonderful opportunities, Carrie actually gets an opportunity to start teaching not only religion classes, because they started letting him teach divinity classes as well, and he did in his own school, but he starts teaching botany and zoology. And he starts teaching the wonderful things, and he's able to teach them as, here's what God has done. And here's how God has worked miracles in plants and miracles in the lives of uh, in the insects and all the other living creatures around us. And Carrie gets the opportunity at the right time to go through that door as well in those areas that God had gifted him. He, Carrie started the Horticultural Society in India. Carrie had planted and, and established one of the best gardens for the next hundred years. It was recognized as like one of the world's greatest gardens there in India. How did he get all this stuff done? Let me give you an idea of his schedule. This is a standard schedule taken out of one of Carrie's letters. He'd wake up at 5.45 in the morning and read a chapter of Hebrew. I want to keep that Hebrew going. I took four and a half years of Hebrew. I wish, wish, wish I'd spent the rest of my life waking up and reading a chapter in Hebrew because you forget that stuff so quickly. Then at 7 o'clock, he'd have prayer with his family. By the way, his wife died. I didn't tell you this. His wife did die, Dolly, over there in England. And God provided him a, a wonderful second uh, wife who he was married to for over a decade. Uh, she subsequently died. He had a third wife as well. Um, but uh, uh, she, his second wife, who he wanted to be buried next to, um, just, you know tidbits historical trivia on William Carey uh honey when I die will you bury me next to my second wife um I don't know how that conversation went it's not recorded but we do know that's where he wanted to be buried uh his second wife no was a wonderful godly woman who really supported the missions and in a way was very redemptive of what he had he'd uh, suffered through uh, uh faithfully with his first wife um family prayer uh then he'd have breakfast and he'd read some Persian, and he'd spend some time translating. By 10 o'clock, he had to be at the school, and he had to teach his classes and do his work at the college. 1 o'clock, he'd go home, and he'd spend the next few hours working on his translations up until 6 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock, he'd have one of the tutors come in or one of the local scholars come in and teach him a new language. Because, hey, might as well, right? And uh, so he'd learn a new language. At 7 o'clock, he would write a sermon because each night he would deliver a sermon at a Bible study at 7.30. So uh, uh, at the end of that, at 9 o'clock, he would answer his correspondence, do his emails, and uh, <laughs> then before he went to bed, read a chapter of Greek, lest he get rusty there. Day in, day out. Day in, day out. He got a lot done. Points for home. All of us 
who are alive. How many of you are alive? Okay, most. All of us who are alive have open doors. There's not a person alive who is a child of God. There's not a person alive who's a child of God where God doesn't have something for that person to do. If you are a child of God, God has purpose in your life. He, not just general, oh, gee, be a nice guy. God has specific things set out for you to do. He does. That you are uniquely sculpted and crafted to do. Oh, don't get me wrong. You may have trashed up a whole bunch of your life up to this point. Doesn't matter. It may not be plan A. You may have missed that. God had plan A for you and you didn't do it. God had plan B and you didn't do it. I'm on triple Z. But that's okay because he's got a triple Z. Where you are today, right now in your life, God has plans for you. And there are doors he may shut for you. And there are other doors he may open for you. He may appear to shut two doors. But we have the promise from God that's found in Proverbs 3. That if we trust in him with all of our heart and we don't lean on our own understanding. Rather, in all of our ways, whatever we're doing, we acknowledge God as our God. Then he'll make our paths straight. He will get us on the right path. He'll make that path straight. And we will not miss what he has in store for us. So that's my challenge to you. The doors may shut. The doors may open. Acknowledge God in what you're doing. What does that mean to acknowledge him in what you're doing? You may be going through some horrible stuff right now you may be going through some great stuff right now doesn't matter in fact it's harder to acknowledge god when life is great you know the the old story guys running late god help me find a parking place help me please 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 right that time a lady pulls out parking place right there in front of the door and he says oh never mind god i found my own okay i mean it's it's a whole lot easier to lean on God sometimes when things aren't going great than it is when they are. But the point of it is, you do it all the time. To acknowledge Him means to say, God, right now I am yours. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm yours. Help me see and do it and not just say it. That's to acknowledge Him. And how do you want to spend your time? Think about it. You know, in Corinthians, Paul says that in the end, there's a fire. And the things that we do, some of it's just wood or hay or just scrap and stubble. And all of it gets burned up in the fire. It's of no use. But things that are of gold and silver, things that, are, are, that last... We'll make it through the fire. Now, what do we do with our lives? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do? do? Do you spend your time and your energy being an imitator of God? Paul, Fleming, Ephesians 5.3. Do you spend your day, or 5.1, 
spend being an imitator of God? Or do you spend your day just doing the things that feed you and make you happy? And this is dead on what Pastor Fleming was talking about this morning. You know, Paul uses sexual immorality in Ephesians to contrast with, with the morality and the character of, of a beloved child imitator of God. But it doesn't have to be sexual immorality. That's a wonderful illustration for Paul because it's the difference between God's love and a selfish love. But the, the principle applies regardless of the sin. Paul also talks of greed in the same passage because the principle is the same. Do you spend your time and your energy living for you? Do I spend my time and energy living for Mark Lanier or do I spend my time and energy seeking what God has for Mark Lanier to do out of love for God? That's the difference. And so Paul would write in Colossians that whatever you do, whether it's something you're doing or something you're saying, whether it's something you're building or something you're tearing down, whether it's something you're, you're, you're thinking, Whatever you do, every interaction, you do it in the name or because of and honoring God and the Lord Jesus. And that's what we do. That's the same principle, acknowledging God in all of our ways. And he makes our path straight. So I ask you, who do you spend, uh, how do you spend your time? But then I'm going to ask you another question. Who do you spend your time with? Gary's kids aren't in here. I always look over here because Gary's kids are here. You're, you're a child. Um, I got to tell kids in here. Okay, any kid under, let's say I'm 46. Any kid under 45, listen. <laughs> Tune in for a minute. I'm telling you, who you run with affects who you are. And don't think otherwise. I can't tell you how many people I knew in high school who went, in, in Lubbock we called it clubbing, who did the club scene, probably illegally with fake IDs, but did it under the guise of, that's okay, I'm the Christian in the group and I need to be there to influence everybody for good. Well, don't get me wrong, maybe that God works in that some. But I want to tell you more times than not what I saw. And that was a steady erosion of the Christian convictions that that person had. As they become more like the people they're hanging around. I, 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 Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, And he's right. Who you run with makes a difference. Now, am I saying we shun the world? Do you, do you watch? Okay, maybe this is like a really bad show and I shouldn't watch it. Um, do you watch The Office? Anybody in here watch The Office? Do you remember the episode where Dwight decides he's going to practice the Amish technique of shunning um, Andy? And so he won't talk to Andy and Andy's sitting right there and Dwight will say to Jim, uh, Jim, tell Andy I'm not, sh not going to talk to him. I'm shunning him. You know, when Andy's right there, and Jim would look at Andy and say, uh, Dwight says, hi, he loves you. And Dwight would say, no, Jim, that's not what I said. You tell him what I said. You know, when I'm, okay, and then finally Dwight will say, okay, unshun, uh, da-da-da-da-da, shun. Okay? 
I'm, I'm not saying that we shun the world. But I'm saying be careful who you run with. And especially at a young age. Be careful who you run with. Because as much as at, when, when we're young, we like to think that um, we're, we're totally done. I, I think I was grown up when I was seven. That's when I first realized, okay, well, I'm basically grown up. Maybe I was eight. Turns out I was wrong. Okay. What really happens is your cement is not hard yet in builder's terms. Right, Al? You're still, you don't want to step on the cement till it's hard. Be careful who you run with because it makes a difference in who you are. And you'll miss open doors and directions God has for you. And it'll propel you down to ZZZ sooner than you want to go there. Go for the A and B. Go for the incredible life that God has. So here's your action step with all of this as we end. Invite a co-worker to to church. You can take them to lunch too. Invite a co-worker to church. I'll have a a class next Wednesday. If you don't want to invite them to church, then uh, invite them to class maybe. But I'd invite him to church. Let him hear these incredible sermons from David. I mean, he's just been whew, on fire. Uh, and then I'll try not to embarrass them if they come to class after church. But uh, uh, I'd urge you to do that. You might invite uh, William Carey and look how the world was changed. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the faithful stewards you've had of your word and your kingdom. And the fact that we are here today. Because of the way you and your faithful people have followed you and taken your message out. Thank you for the missionaries that we know. And thank you that you're able to do mission work through all of us individually. Even if we don't go out in the field. Not only through the contributions and the prayers and support we can give the missionaries. But Lord the way you can shine your light through our lives. And it is our prayer that through your Holy Spirit we'll be motivated encouraged and pointed in the right directions to shine your light to the glory of your kingdom. Through Jesus we pray, amen.